Good morning, Trinity Church, and welcome to our first Zoom Sunday. We are really grateful uh, to the Lord for the technological ability to be able to gather like this and uh, to be able to engage the Word together, uh, to discuss some of what we hear, to pray together. We're just really grateful that we can do that in this forum. I want to say thanks to Dan for doing a lot on the, the back end and behind the scenes to make it happen. Thank you to the deacons for what they've been doing, proactively trying to get the errand service up and running and just to try to be a help and support to anyone uh, during these days. And also to uh, the gospel community leaders and others who are willing to facilitate some of the conversations after this. So big thank you to all those people involved. And uh, we're just glad, like I said, that we could meet together in this forum uh, for this time. Uh, we're going to spend some time this morning in the Word and the Gospel of John. Uh, obviously, we were in a First Timothy study, uh, but with everything that's going on uh, right now, just thought it would be appropriate. Uh, my family and I are going through the Gospel of John, and certain things are kind of jumping out and encouraging me, and I hope by extension they will be an encouragement to you. So uh, we'll be in the Gospel of John for the next few weeks, and I uh, hope that's a blessing to you. So before we jump in, let's pray, and then uh, we'll look at what uh, the Lord has for us in His Word. Father, I do pray that you would reveal the glory of Jesus uh, to us afresh this morning. I pray maybe for the first time for some of us, uh, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, uh, that you would show us how good and how glorious you are. Uh, and Lord, I pray that we would respond appropriately with a surrendered and humble faith that leads to action in our lives. And so I pray that uh, even this digital meeting would be useful for those ends, that you would be glorified, uh, and that we would be able to declare and demonstrate together the good news of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. So I pray that uh, you, would, you would cause those things to happen uh, this day. In Jesus' name, amen. In this world, you will have tribulation. This famous statement was made by Jesus on Thursday night of his Passion Week. And certainly at this time in our lives, that statement resonates with us. Uh, in light of uh, COVID-19 hanging over uh, most of the world, actually like a dark cloud, uh, on top of all the other normal struggles that we have that, that frustrate us, uh, threaten us, attack us, and even discourage us. Uh, this phrase, in this world you will have tribulation, given by Jesus the night before he's about to suffer for our sins, is strangely encouraging to know Jesus knows that we have troubles. It doesn't surprise him. Uh, in fact, he, it's essential. He knows that we are going to have troubles. And not only does he know that we're going to have them, he knows them more clearly and more accurately than anyone knows them. You know, as the fullness of God in human form, he knows our human suffering from when he was here physically and in his divine nature, he knows all things. I mean, we're, we're actually pretty unreliable when it comes to knowing our sin and suffering. I know for me, sometimes it's easy to underestimate my sin and overestimate how much I'm suffering. Um, but Jesus knows our troubles accurately and clearly. And that is a comfort, <coughs> excuse me, to us. But the comfort that he gives in that verse, in that statement, which is taken from John 16 and verse 33, he goes on to say, but be of good cheer, 
I have overcome the world. That's the old King James translation. The, the phrase good cheer really captivated me as I was thinking and meditating through in the Gospel of John. And um, despite all of the sin and suffering that is in us and around us and has been heightened maybe right now because of the threat of this virus, Jesus knows all of that. And in the midst of your tribulation, he still encourages us to be of good cheer. In a world that is infected with sin and suffering, Jesus says, I'm the cure. In a world that's overwhelmed with sin and suffering, Jesus says, I have overcome. And again, as a reminder, he doesn't say that in some beautiful meadow, mountain meadow in the Alps or something like that. He says that when his very life is uh, in jeopardy. He knows he's going to the cross the very next day in just a few hours. And so he tells us, even in the midst of our sin and suffering, in the midst of our trials and tribulations, because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, we can still be of good cheer. And I think it's really important for us in these days to be the type of people to shine the light of Christ, that we are known as people who are of good cheer, or the other versions say, take heart or be confident. We are known as a courageous, hopeful, and even cheerful people in the face of our trials and tribulations, not because we're different or separate from anything else. We're susceptible to everything else that the world is, but because of our Savior and because of our King. So I, the word I want to encourage Trinity Church with this morning is, is that we would have good cheer for troubled hearts. And so the way that I want to do that uh, this morning is by actually jumping back to the beginning of the, of, uh, the Gospel of John to, one, to an episode there in chapter 2 and where Jesus attends a wedding. Uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that's the wedding at Cana. And that episode kind of illustrates um, how Jesus brings good cheer uh, to a community of people that, that have, again, it's not, a, not necessarily a life or death threatening issue there, but Jesus's presence and Jesus's accomplishment bring cheer and gladness and comfort uh, to a group of people who are troubled for various reasons. So that's what I want to do. I want to look at uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and I'll read them uh, now. Scripture says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples as well. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each held 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim and said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You can hear the good cheer that this action of Jesus has brought uh, to this man and to this wedding party and even to his mother. And John comments in verse 11, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. So with that aim in mind, to help us to be of good cheer in light of Jesus' work, 
I want to look at this episode of the wedding at Cana under three headings. The purpose of the sign, the sign being Jesus turning water to wine, that sign. I want to look at the purpose of that, the story actually, the events of it, the details of it, and then finally how we might be able to apply that, the application of the sign. So let's start with the purpose of the sign. And any conversation in the book of John needs to be had in the light of John's explicit purpose statement that he gives in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And John says there, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. This sign in John chapter 2 was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's the purpose of this little episode. And even in the uh, verse 11 of the episode, you, you see an allusion, a connection to that overall purpose. This is the first of his signs. Again, corresponding to John 20, that many signs were done. And that Jesus did this in Cana at Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Again, the purpose from John 20 is that you would see the signs, the teachings, the stories, and that you would believe. And that's exactly what happened there with the disciples. And so in this little episode that we're going to look at this morning, my desire and hope and, and confident expectation is that the Holy Spirit will use this to reveal the glory of Jesus to us, to see who he is and what he's accomplished, and that we will believe, and that in believing we will have life, we will experience joy, we will be of good cheer. And so that's the purpose of this episode that John records. So let's move right into the details of it. Let's look at the story of this sign. And the story begins in an obscure village, Cana of Galilee. We wouldn't know anything about it if it hadn't been recorded probably in uh, these gospel accounts. It's about 10 miles away from Nazareth where Jesus grew up, and there's a wedding going on there. We don't know who's getting married. It's an unnamed couple that's getting married. And when we arrive there, we find that it's not just us. It's Jesus and his disciples are there, and Jesus's mother is there. The fact that it's so close to Nazareth and that Jesus and his mother are invited, it's probably a close friend or maybe even an extended relative. Uh, the reason we would say that is because Mary had some concern about the, the wine issue. If she were just a guest, that wouldn't be of any of her concern. But if she were connected to them, either as a really close family friend or, you know, as a family member, then that would obviously be a concern for, here, for, for her. So Jesus and a few of his disciples and his mother and probably his brothers and sisters, they're all at this wedding in, in Cana of Galilee. And so here we are with them, and then a conflict arises, and we find it in verses 1 and 2, where uh, the, the wedding feast is running out of wine. Now, a couple just quick things, you know, some cultural context for you. Those weddings could last up to seven days, and the, the groom was the one who was expected to pay for it all. I would be fine if we went back to that, <laughs> having three daughters. But the groom was expected to pay. And it would have been a great dishonor and shameful um, culturally for a long time to come. People would remember for a long time, oh, this was the couple that got married and ran out of wine. You've got the bride and the groom there, and if people are traveling from out of town, and, and even like 
it could be a legal issue, as some scholars would say, that if you, if you didn't provide for people, you weren't able to provide for them, and they had to go back, you ended up having to pay for some of their expenses and things like that. So this was a, it was a, a, in an honor and shame culture. Uh, the, the stakes were high here and for cultural standing, and to run out of wine would have been very embarrassing uh, and, you know, and financially potentially damaging for this couple and for this family. And so Mary is rightly concerned about this. They're running out of wine. And so she goes to Jesus and she says, they don't have any wine. A very simple statement to try to maybe get at solving this problem. It's kind of a loaded statement, I would say. She's probably a little bit suggestive that, hey, Jesus, can you solve this problem? Was she expecting a miracle? Maybe, maybe not. Um, which, you know, probably she was used to depending on Jesus. Uh, most people think Joseph had passed away at this point, and Jesus would have been, in a sense, the head of the household, the main provider. And so it would be natural for this situation to Mary to go to her firstborn son and say, hey, can you do anything about this? And so that's basically what she does. Does she also have maybe some messianic things in there as well? Maybe, probably. Uh, the text isn't explicit about that. But she simply goes to Jesus and tries to solve the problem with this suggestion by saying, hey, they ran out of wine. Jesus responds to her statement. Uh, and at first blush, it seems kind of rude. He says, woman. Okay. And to our ears, it's like, whoa, that, that, is he being disrespectful to his mother? Uh, no, probably not. Probably the best way to understand this is the word ma'am. That's a civil. It's not affectionate for sure. It's direct and it's civil. He just calls her ma'am. Like you would go to the store and say, hey, ma'am, can I get one of these? Jesus isn't, uh, in a sense, kowtowing to her or giving her special favors just because she's uh, his mother. He's actually creating a little bit of distance, maybe a little bit of social distancing going on there where he's just referring to her as a general woman. And then he asks this question, what does this have to do with me? He's like basically saying, this isn't my problem. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus is saying, I didn't, come, I didn't leave heaven, the glories of heaven, born in a manger, you know, rush off to Egypt and back at the threat of my own life so that I could provide enough wine for this couple, unnamed couple in this obscure village in Cana of Galilee. That's not why I came. My hour has not yet come. And so in a sense, he kind of brushes off her suggested request that he solve this problem with the wine. Mary does respond by then saying to the servants, she's relatively undeterred, which I love her response, and we'll get into that more a little bit later. But she says to the servant standing by, just do whatever he says. So basically, she's, she doesn't argue with Jesus. She doesn't push back. She just says, whatever he says is going to be fine. You just do whatever he says. And so then Mary leaves the scene. So after the discussion about the conflict, then there come some actions about the conflict. And the actions that Jesus says is that he tells these servants to fill these stone uh, pots, basins really, up all the way to the brim with water which they do, and then they take the water, they scoop it out, now become wine, they bring it to the master of the feast, he tastes it, he is super impressed by this, you know, usually the best wine is first, and then the inferior wine is second, and he says, this is the opposite, the, the, the first wine was good, and this is even better, and so uh, the, the joy, and the mirth, and the celebration, the cheer, being of good cheer, is accomplished. And so this family's reputation is saved, even though they don't even really know it. The only people that we know that are aware of the problem are these servants and Mary and Jesus and the, some of the disciples that were standing by. 
And so the, the public shame is averted and the joy and the festivities are continued all at the expense of Jesus's powerful display of turning the water into wine. And so he doesn't make it public yet. He's not manifesting to everyone who he is yet, but certainly the glory of Jesus is seen in this first little sign that he does in Cana of Galilee. And so that's the story of the sign. And now let's go uh, to the application of the sign. The application is found in, um, is best seen in the word sign itself. It's this idea, you can think of a traffic sign or a road sign. It points you in the right direction. And so what happened with Jesus at this little wedding in Cana of Galilee is pointing to something much bigger and much deeper than him making sure the guests have an appropriate beverage at that wedding. And it's, as you might guess, it's based in the Old Testament, where in Isaiah uh, chapter 62, God promises that he will be the bridegroom to Israel. He will restore Israel's fortune and their honor and their provision and their glory. And all the nations of the world will stream to Israel and to her Messiah and to her king. He says that he will be the groom to the people of God, to the bride, Israel, his people. That's what he says in Isaiah 62. And so when Jesus shows up at a wedding, at first glance, this has nothing to do with his overall purpose, but hidden, so to speak, underneath it, or if you're looking to where the sign is pointing, this is Jesus saying and announcing that he is now the groom who is coming to restore and provide for his people in the midst of their sin and their suffering. He has come to bring good cheer to hurting, frustrated oppressed people. He's that bridegroom. And this is confirmed in John chapter 3, because in John chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the bridegroom, right in the very next chapter. And so this little episode is a sign that points to the fact that Jesus is coming as the groom to bring about the joyful, festive, celebration of the union of God to his people where he rescues, provides, heals, restores, and transforms them. All of that you could call the kingdom of God. And so that, in, in one sense, Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? Nothing. But in a deeper sense, what does it have to do with Jesus? Absolutely everything. And so that's how we should apply or at first interpret this sign. To press into the application a little bit further, if you look again in chapter 2 and verse 11, uh, John comments, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so when we try to, we, you know, we understand where the sign is pointing to Jesus and his kingdom, and we see then John's comments, though, that we are to see Jesus's glory in this and we are to believe in him. And so those are the two uh, just application points that I want to finish with this morning as we look at this little episode and how do, how do we apply it to our life. Okay, good news for troubled people is that Jesus's kingdom is here. What does that mean more specifically? How can we get more tangible with that? And the first thing I want to do is I want to look at the glory of Jesus in this episode. You see the glory of Jesus in three ways, I think. 
Number one, in his freedom. Number two, in his transformation power. And thirdly, in his generosity. So Jesus' freedom is seen in the fact that he does not give his mother Mary special favors just because she's his biological mother. I tried to allude to that in my, in my conversation about that as I was telling you the details of the story. Jesus is not a respecter of persons. Jesus isn't going to do what his biological family wants. He's not operating on Mary's timetable about when he should promote himself as the Messiah. His siblings did it later, I think in John 7. They wanted him to show the world who he was, and he didn't do it. Jesus was not pressured by anyone else's timetable other than his father's. He was absolutely 100% committed and surrendered to the Father's will and the Father's timing. And for that, we should honor and glorify Jesus. I mean, we should also seek to emulate it for sure. We should be so single-minded so that we would be free from what other people think and all of their expectations. And the only thing that would guide us would be the Father's will for our lives. Certainly, we see that in Jesus. And if he didn't have that type of commitment, then he would have swerved away from what God the Father had called him to do. We see Jesus' freedom in that he was ultimately committed to the Father, and that's glorious. Second, we see the glory of Jesus in his transformation power. And this is what jumps off the page with the water to the wine. Jesus has the ability to take old, worn out, dirty, and make it new, clean, joyful, and powerful. Remember, those basins, John said, were for purification rituals, which meant they washed utensils and people's hands in them. They weren't all the way filled up, so they poured a bunch of more water into that dirty water. And it was kind of like you know, Jesus is saying that the, the old Jewish system, the sacrificial system, the, the temple and the sacrifices and all of that stuff, it's not sufficient. It's old, it's worn out, and I'm doing something transformative. I'm doing something new. That's insufficient. What I have is sufficient. That won't bring about joy. That leads to emptiness. What I have is fullness and joy and blessing and good cheer. You see the contrast there? The old Jewish way of, of relating to God is no longer going to be sufficient. And by the way, most of us aren't struggling with that issue. But if we're Gentiles... Our old way of life wasn't even as good as the Jewish way of life. And so by, you know, from greater to lesser, that argument shows that we need Jesus's newness and Jesus's transformative power even more. If the Jewish system needed it, how much more would the Gentiles way of life need it? And so what we see in Jesus's kingdom is that he takes what's old and what's broken and what's dirty and he makes it new, restored and clean. That's the glory of Jesus. That's pointing forward to his hour. Through his death and his powerful resurrection, Jesus is making all things new. That's power and that's glory. And we should definitely be encouraged. We should be of good cheer because that's the king and the savior that we serve. Finally, as far as Jesus' glory is concerned, look at his generosity. I mean, six pitchers. 20 to 30 gallons full, you think that's a little over the top? <laughs> that's a lot of wine. That's enough to keep the celebration going all week long. 
and that is a sign. It's pointing to the generosity of Jesus' kingdom and the union that he brings with his people. I mean, you think about the generosity of Jesus when it comes to forgiveness. He forgives you of all of your sins. The things that you left undone, that you should have done, the things that you have done that you should not have done, thought, word, deed, young, when you're young in your life, when you're older in your life, when you didn't know better, when you should have, when you did know better, all of the sins that you could ever commit. The generosity of Jesus is that where your sin abounds, Romans 5, the grace of Jesus superabounds above that. Where you think that, you know, you would forgive someone seven times, Jesus says, in my kingdom, it's like 70 times seven. The generosity of Jesus' forgiveness is actually, we're, we actually are uncomfortable with it. It's too much. It's too gracious. But that's the generosity. That's what it's like to really be in the kingdom of God. That kind of generosity. Powerful, overwhelming generosity. And not just forgiveness. Think about presence and access. Access and advocacy are huge. Can you take your concerns to people who actually can do something about it? That's the importance of access and advocacy. Do you have powerful and influential people's ear so that they can help you? And in the kingdom of God, each of us get that access and that kind of presence. I will never leave you or forsake you. You can come to the throne of grace anytime that you have a need. The problem isn't that isn't Jesus' generosity. It's that we, we turn away from it. I mean, we could go to him literally any time and all the time, all day long. That's what the kingdom of God has opened up for us. And we're just like, ah, you don't really need that. It's like, no, we are, we are missing out on the incredible generosity of Jesus when we would hang on to our sin, when he generously offers to forgive it all, when we, when we go to other places instead of going into his presence and accessing all of who he is and bringing our lives before him in that way. He's incredibly generous with his forgiveness, with his presence, with his access, with his family. Even at Trinity Church, so many brothers and sisters who are willing to love and serve and care for and pray and seek to grow and befriend. He's generous. He's generous with all of these gifts. And we're tempted and and tried to think over and over again that he's not generous. It's like the Garden of Eden. Every tree was good to look at and good for food, and Satan brings up the one thing that they weren't allowed to have, and he, he undercuts the generosity and goodness of the Father, and that's where our heart goes. If I could encourage us this morning to be of good cheer, Trinity Church, take your eyes off the things that you think you've got to have that Jesus hasn't allowed you to have right now. Turn your eyes away from them and look at all of the generous benefits that he has loaded on you in his kingdom and in his person. Jesus, this episode is screaming the generosity of Jesus. Be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world, and he has been exceedingly generous to us in his uh, forgiveness, his access, his presence, his time, and with his family. Lastly, I just want to look briefly at the faith that this story should elicit. And you see it most clearly in Mary. When Mary first came to Jesus, uh, she was misguided. She thought the main issue was the wine. Maybe there were some other good intention things under there, but that seemed to be her issue. And Jesus goes deeper than that right away. She's almost kind of like the woman at the well who thought the issue was actual water from the well. And Jesus says, no, I got living water. I got eternal water. So we all are kind of like that. 
Now, you can stop and think maybe for yourself. What are some of the issues that you're coming to Jesus with, which is good that you're coming to him, but you're misguided because you're focused on the temporal issue? Remember what Jesus does here. He takes her temporal issue and says, hey, what do I have to do with that? I'm, I'm all about my father's hour. And so we need to learn from that. We need to see that we need to take our temporal issues that we have and connect them to Jesus' death, resurrection, and return. What do the issues, the trials and tribulations that are, I am experiencing in my life have to do with the death, burial, resurrection, and return of Jesus? That's where Jesus is trying to guide us to. So oftentimes we come to Jesus a bit misguided, and we need that gentle rebuke from him to say, that's, what, what do I have to do? That, that's not my concern. My concern has to do with the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so she, she, her faith is a bit misguided, and Jesus rebukes it mildly and gently and, and, and shepherds it in the direction uh, of his kingdom. And then when that happens, you see this wonderful thing from Mary that she's known for. This is the second time it happens. The first time was when the angel came to her and said she was going to have a baby by the Holy Spirit's conception. And she responded by saying, be it unto me, as, be it to your servant as you say. She just surrenders fully to what the Lord has for her. And here she surrenders as well by saying, okay, just do whatever he says. And I love it. That's faith. That's the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for. If you want to experience transformational uh, power of Jesus, the generosity of Jesus, then what you need to do is surrender. And surrender is an aspect of faith. I trust him. I mean, can you trust the one who is forgiving all of your sins, who is giving you complete access to him, who is answering your prayers, who has promised to never leave you or forsake you? Can you surrender everything to him? Jesus says that we're to lose our life, and if we do that, we'll actually find it. You know, it's interesting, in chapter 2 and verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother, and she is reproached. In chapter 2 and verse 5, she responds as a believer, and her faith is honored. She still does not know what he's going to do, but she has completely committed the matter to him. That's biblical faith. That's what it means to trust Jesus, to take the issues of our lives and surrender them to him. And so again, what's troubling you? What's your trial? What's the sin that you're struggling with? Give it back to Jesus. I know we do this giving back and forth with Jesus at times. Surrender it afresh to him again and seek not to take it back. Put your issues in his almighty, generous hands. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. The last thing about Mary's faith that we, that we saw in here, not only was it a bit misguided in the beginning, but then uh, it was surrendered, but it was also active. Do something. Fill, you know, do whatever Jesus says. And I would say that's a crucial aspect of our faith, that we're willing to step out and actually obey and do what Jesus says. And so how do we respond? We allow Jesus to reshape and reframe the issues of our lives, because at times and oftentimes we're misguided. And then... We surrender these issues to him, and then we act, we do whatever Jesus says. That is a pathway, that is a trajectory that will lead us as individuals and as a church to experience the transforming power and the generosity of Jesus and his kingdom right now and even forevermore. And so I think this little episode ties in pretty neatly with chapter 16, where Jesus says to be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus came to bring peace and joy and comfort 
to those who would surrender and trust him. And so in the midst of these days, with many trials, difficulties, tribu and tribulations, I would say, be of good cheer, Trinity Church. Jesus has overcome the world.